Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 13, verses 22 through 30. The passage may be found in your pew Bibles on page 873. I will be reading from the English Standard Version, which is the translation that Pastor Wes Holland will be preaching from. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you will begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from the east and west and from the north and south and recline at a table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. May God bless our understanding this reading from his holy word. As you can see, we are not... uh, having communion this Sunday. We're going to put that off one more week in hopes that we will have a plan where we can social distance and not use those little cups. I think we have a a plan just about ready. (laughs) So, um, yeah, that's been a struggle. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, God, we do ask that uh, you would uh, open the eyes of our hearts, open the ear of our soul to your word, and I pray that um, as we uh, look at this portion of Scripture and as I proclaim it, uh, I pray that you would help us to sanctify Jesus Christ uh, in our hearts as Lord, that we might uh, draw from him all that nourishment we need, that we might uh, submit ourselves in loving obedience to him more and more, we ask in his name, amen. You know, I look back on my computer to see when I first preached, or, or first preached my first sermon in the Gospel of Luke. Now, uh, you'll remember, I took one Sunday a month, the last Sunday of the month, to preach a psalm, and then when Jeremy arrived, I gave him uh, that Sunday instead, and then I've also had a handful of Sundays 
where I was on vacation, and of course that horrid month where I was out with COVID. Uh, with that being said, we've been in the Gospel of Luke for a long time. Uh, we started the Gospel of Luke on February 10th, 2019, over two, two years ago. And I mentioned that because I learned something new uh, from the Gospel of Week that uh, the Gospel of Luke that I should have learned a long time ago, and I am eager to share it with you. Uh, each week, my focus has been on the particular passage and how all the details of the passage fit together to communicate um, God's message to us from the Scriptures. And to use the old adage, the trees are the details and the forest is the passage. So, for instance, this week, the forest would be uh, Luke 13, uh, verses 22 through 30. And then all the details are the various things within that passage that um, that we are learning. Uh, and But... Uh, Jesus' answer in verse 23, actually it's a non-answer, um, it caused me to, to widen my view of the forest, to look back over the whole of uh, the Gospel of Luke. And I began to reflect on how Jesus views life here in this world and how he ordered his priorities. Because we've, like I said, been here two years and we've been seeing his preaching week after week, month after month. And it becomes easy then to discern his priorities. And uh, as I thought back through Jesus' preaching and teaching, it hit me how focused he has been on eternity and on having a right relationship with God. And you've heard that many times as we have gone through the Gospel of Luke. It will not allow us to ignore those priorities. You know, I drive around town and I see churches that are marketing themselves to the community. You know, either on the signs or, or, or uh, however, they're, they, they have the little slogan uh, for 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 you to see when it when you drive around town, and so you see a lot of churches uh, with the slogan "A place to belong," or uh, "Come live life's journey with so and so a church." And what the, these churches are telling the world is that the church is a social organization where you can live a happier, more fulfilling life. And I'm sure that's not all that they're saying, but that seems to be the leading thing that they are saying. And, you know, and I understand what they're doing, you know, is throwing a little bait out there, you know, to draw people who would have no interest in being in the church, you know, into the church to hear the gospel. Um, but this, this, um, this message, apparently their, their marketing message uh, it's working because it's becoming my increasing experience that fewer and fewer people expect the church 
to be telling them how they can be saved and how they can have a relationship with God. I belong to this uh, business um, leads group in the Chamber of Commerce, uh, and I get up, and you, you give these little 30-second elevator speeches, you know, basically, here's why you should come to my church, or here's why you should use my business, or whatever. And when I talk about having a relationship with God, or having salvation from sin, the people in the room look at me as if I'm speaking another language. Jeremy can testify to it. Jeremy has, uh, has been there to these meetings, and we talk about salvation in Christ. And I get these blank stares in return. They have no idea, and they're, they're mystified that I would be talking to them about having salvation in Jesus Christ as a priority, salvation from our sins as the chief message that we are proclaiming at Westminster Presbyterian Church. But that was Jesus' focus while he was here on earth. It was his priority. Therefore, it must be our priority. The church's ministry and message must always prioritize this question, what must one do to be saved? It does not mean, of course, that we ignore pastoral issues, nor do we ignore the great problems in society or the practical issues such as child-rearing, marriage, family, finances, and those kinds of practical issues. I'm simply saying that the church's one great function, the reason why the Lord Jesus left the church here on earth, is to address spiritual matters, to address matters of eternity. If we allow ourselves to become a social organization and push these issues of eternity and spiritual matters to the background, where are they going to hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ? That is our task. And we are to address these issues with great urgency. Because these matters are so consequential. So let's look at the text, and I, I hope you'll uh, begin to follow what I'm saying, because I know when I start thinking and I start trying to communicate the things that are rattling around in my head, it may not be the clearest as I am trying to communicate. That's why I stick closely to the text. Well, I stick closely to the text, because that's what I'm charged to do. But also, it helps organize my, my thoughts as I um, uh, bring to you the Word of God. So, Jesus, here in our passage, was working his way towards Jerusalem. And he's teaching from town to town, from village to village. And presumably, there's a great crowd that's following him. And a person shouts out from the crowd a question. Lord, will those who are saved... Be few. Instead of answering this question, Jesus turned to the crowd because he addresses them in the plural. He, he turned to the crowd and he exhorted them to strive 
to enter through the narrow door. Jesus refused to answer the question that was asked of him because it appears this question was born of simple curiosity. Will those who are being to be saved be, be few? And instead, Jesus turns and makes personal salvation a matter of great urgency. And there is urgency. Because as Jesus continued, he said, Many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Jesus uses this word um, in verse 24, this word strive to underscore the urgency. Uh, The Greek word translated strive, see if you can figure out what English word we use uh, from it. It's agonzethe. I can pronounce that when I don't have a whole bunch of people staring at me. Um, Agonizethe. So what is the word? Agonize. That's the the English word we get from this word. It's also uh, translated fight or struggle. As Paul summarized his walk with Christ and and, uh, his ministry as his ministry was drawing to a close, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And so the word fought is this Greek word that we could translate agonize. And again, the word fight is, again, he repeats the word that we we could translate agonize. It means fight or struggle. So we could say uh, Paul, or we could translate Paul saying, I have agonized the good agony. I have struggled the good struggle. And so Jesus is telling people, forget about these theoretical questions about how many people will be saved and make sure that you are saved. He's saying to strive, to put forth all your effort to know God, to enter through that door of salvation and fellowship with their Maker. Compare what Jesus is saying with how many or, or with how many proceed in their Christian life. Many live their Christian life for mediocrity. Some are very part-time in their walk with Christ. Others are easily distracted from living the Christian life until Sunday morning rolls around. And I want to urge you, because I think this is what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, don't be a part-time Christian. Don't settle for mediocrity in your walk with Christ. Pursue God with all your heart. Read the Bible. And when you don't feel like reading the Bible, study it more. Pray and ask God to help you. Pray the Lord's Prayer if you're struggling to pray. But seek God with all your heart. 
Strive, he says. Strive to enter through that narrow door. Why is it called a narrow door? Well, first of all, there's only one door that leads to eternal life. You know, there are many doors. There are many truth claims out there. There are many religions that tell us there's this way to God and that way to God. Those doors may look beautiful. They may be wide. They may be attractive. It may have a beautiful path leading up to it. But every one of those doors leads to destruction. So in comparison to these other doors, the door of salvation is narrow. And it's necessarily narrow because only Jesus has done what needs to be done for our salvation. Who else has offered perfect atonement for your sins? We need a a perfect sacrifice of infinite value to atone for all the wrong that we have done. We need a perfect holiness in order for us to be able to stand before God. And only at the cross do we find that atonement that we need. Only in Jesus do we find that perfect holiness. You know, people hate the uh, exclusivity of Christianity. We're called bigoted because we claim that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. Who likes being called a bigot? But what Christ is doing here in this passage is he is loving the people enough to urge them through that only door, that narrow passage that leads to life. He's not made the, narrow, the, the, the door narrow so that few people will find it. Rather, he's telling them, there is a door to life. It's narrow. Make sure you find it. Strive to enter through that door. And frankly, he was loving them enough to create that door and to make sure that it was open for sinners at all. You know, he was not obligated to save us. You know, if we get what we deserve, we will get justice and wrath. But God loves us so much. Jesus loves us so much that he came here to earth. And every moment of every day, he had his face set toward that cross. Nothing would deter him. And he embraced that cross. And he embraced our sins on that cross because he loved us so much. He did not need to do it. It was his love. So Jesus is not making this door narrow so that we won't be able to find it. It's narrow because, frankly, he is the only way, the truth, and the life. And we need to love people enough to press through their shouts of bigotry to tell them that Jesus Christ is the only Savior and that he's a good Savior, despite all their protest. Jesus also calls the door narrow because many people do miss it. 
It's not that they don't care about spiritual things. It's not because they don't care about having a relationship with God. Jesus says in verse 22, I'm sorry, 24, that many people will indeed seek to enter. But they'll miss it. Why will they miss it? Well, Jesus gives some hints in verses 25 through 27. And so Jesus says, When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and taught, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you, where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. What's happening here is not that Jesus is trying to hide the door. It's rather the people are too complacent to enter in. In every town, Jesus called people to uh, come to him for salvation. But they wouldn't come. We're Jews. We're God's chosen people. Why do we need to really take any urgency with what you say? You, call, you uh, create a miracle and feed 5,000. We'll come eat your food. But if you offer yourself to us as the Savior, we don't really need you, was the upshot of how they acted toward the Lord Jesus. And then there came a time when it was too late and they were locked out. What does it mean to be too late? Is there a time where you can reject God past uh, the salvation date? Or is he talking about um, their death? He probably is also talking about the judgment that was going to come upon the nation of Israel within that generation because of um, their their, uh, rejection of the Messiah. But whatever the reason, the Bible says right here in these verses that there was a time where it was too late. They thought salvation was theirs by right. They did not strive to enter in the narrow door because they thought they were the chosen people. And as they were the chosen people, and they rejected the one who chose them. As you read verses 25 through 27, they had, and it, it becomes clear, they had an expectation that they were going to enter. They came knocking, saying, open the door for us. And they were shocked that they were locked out. You know, you cannot out God's grace. But apparently, you can outlast his willingness to save. Whatever that means. That's what this passage is saying. That's what this passage is warning us not to do. Don't wait past the time of your salvation. In fact, the Bible says, today is the day of salvation. Notice that they felt that they had a relationship with Jesus. When they're locked out, they protest that they ate and drank with him Um, in his presence, and that Jesus had taught them in their streets. And indeed, Jesus had taught them in their streets. Uh, Verse 22 says he went from town to town, village to village, 
teaching. But their relationship with him was only superficial. To make sure that Jesus, or to make sure that the people understood, Jesus repeated it twice. He says, I do not know where you come from. And then again, he says, I do not know where you come from. You know, this has been an issue throughout the history of the church. There are many in the church who only have a superficial relationship with Jesus. Many cry out, Lord, Lord, every week in the worship services, maybe in prayer at the dinner table each evening, but their relationship with God is so superficial. Their relationship with Christ is so um, unserious that Jesus says, I do not know where you came from. Salvation is more than casual familiarity with Jesus. You know, my parents took me to church every week when I was growing up. My dad prayed at each meal in the evening. But my mom and my dad did not come to know Jesus until after I did, after I was uh, in college, because their Christianity was very culturally oriented. I grew up in the South, grew up in a, in a little country church. And as long as you went to church each Sunday, as long as you had walked the aisle one time and had been baptized, nobody really questioned whether you were a Christian or not. And I walked an aisle in 10th grade, and everybody told me, you've become a Christian, never doubt it. For the next two and a half years, God was trying to tell me I wasn't a Christian. And believe me, as a professor or a, a one who confessed to believe and trust in Jesus Christ, when I was in 10th grade, when I was in 11th grade, when I was in 12th grade, when I entered into college, my confession was very superficial. My relationship with Jesus Christ was only surface deep. It did not extend to my heart. I really did not care to know him. I wanted to go to heaven. That's about all I wanted to have from Jesus Christ. And Jesus warns us. In fact, the, the, the passage that uh, God used to bring me to Jesus Christ was Matthew seven twenty one through 23. And I had to read it several times over several months before it finally dawned on me that maybe Jesus is speaking to me. And here's what Jesus says in Matthew seven twenty one through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Do um, many uh, miracles in your name. Do many good works in your name. And he says, I will tell them plainly, or I will tell them clearly, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. And it finally dawned on me, yeah, that was me. And I was so undone at my hypocrisy. I was so 
uh, upset at the, the evil that I saw in my heart that as I was calling out to God on the one hand and trying to go to church and, and play at being a Christian to make sure I got in heaven, I was so undone, I said, Jesus, I can't do it. I don't deserve to be in heaven. Please have mercy on me. And guess what he did? He had mercy on me. Jesus identified the root issue in verse 27. And frankly, it was the root issue in my own life when he told them, Depart from me, all you workers of evil. They never came to Jesus for authentic salvation. Because authentic salvation is a threefold salvation. You need a new heart that loves God and submits to Him. You need a clean record, which is forgiveness of sins and the righteousness of Christ. You need a new life that um, ensues a new life of obedience that ensues because the Holy Spirit is living uh, in, your, in your life. These people were locked out of eternal life because their hearts remained evil and they were rebellious to God, despite their confession of Jesus. That's one of the, the issues that we would have with the invitation system. You know, as long as you say, Lord, Lord, and walk the aisle, you're saved. And your faith can remain very superficial, if at real at all. In verses 28 through 30, Jesus finally answered the question uh, that was raised at the beginning of the passage. And basically what he said was that many who, t- who thought that they were first in line for salvation, in other words, the Jews, would not get in, while many who had no expectation of being saved, the Gentiles, will get in ahead of them. And so that's basically what he's saying. Listen to verses 28 through 30. In that place... There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you say Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. The, the, the word cast out there, I can do a little bit better with this Greek word. It's the Greek word ekbalo. Ek meaning out, balo means to throw. You're, it's, it's a very graphic term. God's saying, he's not saying that they're just left outside knocking on the door, but they are actively cast out of God's presence. And then he goes on, verse 29, and people will come from east and west and from north and south, in other words, all points of the compass, and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last, uh, some are last who will, who will be first, and some who are first, who will be last. Uh, that's all Jesus meant by this first and last in the context, is that the Gentiles will get in ahead of them. In fact, many of the Jews who just take for granted they're going to be saved will not, be get, will not get in at all. They will be cast out. Um, 
Now, of course, Jesus told a parable where he applied the first and the last in a little more nuanced fashion, but here it's, it's just basically um, just making this point. And then uh, Jesus answers their question in verse 23, uh, as Ralph Davis puts it. We could say that the answer to the question is, in terms of, will those who are saved be few? He says, well, it'll be fewer than one would expect that would be saved, yet more than one would imagine. And then Jesus is using this idea of the first and last to help drive home the point that the Jews needed salvation uh, that, he was going, that, he, that he was going to provide by his death and his resurrection. He paints a picture of them weeping and gnashing their teeth because they will know that others, the Gentiles, will be saved and they are not. They will weep for eternity because of their loss. They won't get in. While at the same time, they'll be gnashing their teeth in rage that the Gentiles got in ahead of them. Can you imagine living in utter darkness under the wrath and curse of God, suffering externally while internally perpetually being heartbroken that Jesus came and preached in your town and you rejected him? And then at the same time, full of anger, for all eternity, because these Gentiles got in ahead of you. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that you or a loved one might suffer such torment forever and ever and ever with no end? I want to conclude by returning to my thoughts at the beginning of this sermon. Eternity is real. Salvation and damnation are real. God is real. Eternity and spiritual matters, things which pertain to God, must be our priority. If we lose focus on spiritual things, if we lose focus on telling people how they might be saved, then who will make this their priority? Parents, make it your priority to teach your children how to strive to enter through the narrow door. Teach your neighbors how to strive to enter the narrow door. It's Mother's Day today. And the grown children will likely be around the dinner table. Urge them to to strive to enter the narrow door. Not only is God real, death is a reality. Life is short. Eternity is long. Don't waste the time we have here. Proclaim Christ to your lost family members your lost neighbors, people you meet. There's an urgency. Jesus says, strive to enter through that 
narrow door. If you've not entered, don't wait past today. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. And Jesus is such a good Savior. He, tells, he gave us this in, our, in his word in order that we would indeed be um, instructed to strive to enter through him who is that narrow door. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come to you. We thank you for this portion of Scripture. It's a difficult uh, passage to hear, but, oh, Lord, um, it's good medicine for our soul. Lord, help us. I pray for the young people here who grow up in church and may think that uh, they may take it for granted. Lord, I pray for... um, unsaved loved ones that we will have an opportunity to talk to on the phone or around the dinner table. Lord, I pray that even if it's just a simple invite to church, Lord, that uh, you would help us to have these conversations so that those who need to strive to enter through that narrow door would not hesitate, but enter and find Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.